Jesus House in Pursuit of God Discovering Purpose Maximizing Potential Impacting Lives This message is being brought to you from Jesus House London God bless you so grateful for your mercy. We're in awe of your amazing grace. We're grateful for your compassion, the love that you, you've shown to us, that unconditional love. And Father, what's our response? To declare our love to you by our obedience to your commandments. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name. And together we say, Amen. Go and give God a clap offering. Go and celebrate God. Amen. We are going to continue our teaching um, about the new and money. Um, the more I, I prepare and prep for this teaching, the more I am so certain that, that, this, that God is trying to bring about a change in our attitude to money in preparation for what he wants to do uh, in our lives in the new with money. And so if you wanted a sub-theme for today's message, it would be rethinking our attitude to money. Rethinking our attitude to money. The famous scriptures that, um, scriptures that we know um, and we've used in many instances, Romans, the 12th chapter, verses 1 and 2. And these scriptures help set the tone for what I would want to share. Of course, it's a follow-on from what we shared last week. Um, there's a clear connection, as we said, there would be. Um, and Paul is addressing the Christians in Rome They've given their lives to Christ, and he knows that for them to live and enjoy the fullness of this Christian life, something has to take place. Um, and what, that, what he talks about is foundational uh, to them living as disciples of Christ um, in, a, in a culture that is seeking to cause them to live like that culture. Uh, and so he addresses them, and this scripture addresses us today. Romans, the 12th chapter, verses 1 to 2. I'm reading from the Amplified Classic because it does that. I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, and beg of you, he says, in view of all the mercies of God, to make a decisive dedication of your bodies. He says, he says if we understand God's mercy in view of all the mercies of God and the number one mercy that is right before us is the mercy of God that took Christ to the cross so Christ bore our sins and so we don't have to pay for the consequences of our sins. He says if you understand that mercy, if you understand the cross, if you understand the, the significance of, of the Son of God living all that, he, all that He is in heaven to come down to this earth for you and I, 
And if you understand the mercies that flow from that, and, and I feel sometimes we need to pause and reflect on those mercies. Because a lot of times, because we are expecting, we are reaching out for, we are looking forward to, we sometimes miss the, 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 the import, the significance of this mercy of God and the continuing mercies. It says, I appeal to you that in view of all the mercies of God, make a decisive dedication of your bodies. Make, make a decision, a decisive dedication of your bodies. He says, presenting all your members and faculties, everything that you are, presenting it to God because you understand his mercy as a living sacrifice. That means it's dev devoted and consecrated to God. And as a result, it is well-pleasing to God. And then he goes on to say, this is a reasonable, rational, intelligent service and spiritual worship. Now, that tells us that worship is not the song we sing. It's not a portion in a service. It's not a favorite hymn. He's saying your spiritual worship that pleases God is when you have taken a decision, decisive decisively dedicating your body, consecrating your faculties, everything that you are to God. That is the worship that pleases God. That is what the Bible refers to as worship that is in spirit and in truth. And then he goes on to say, do not be conformed to this world, this age, fashioned after and adapted to its external superficial customs, but be transformed, changed, by the entire renewal of your mind, by its new ideals and its new attitude, so that you may prove for yourselves what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God, even the thing which is good and acceptable and perfect in his sight for you. How do I enter God's will? How do I lock into God's purpose? Paul is saying that the starting process is that there has to be a transformation that takes place. There has to be a renewal. We have to break away from the systems of the world. You can't function in the kingdom with the systems of the world. There has to be some breaking away from that, those systems to function in the kingdom of God and enjoy its benefits and, and, and enter the perfect will of God. It is taking on new ideals and a new attitude. Now, this is where the problem is. Because the, the, the ideals and the attitude of the world towards money is very much in the church. In fact, it shapes a lot of the church's attitude towards money. It's really driving a large part of the prosperity message. And so there is a challenge with God. I can't entrust my wealth to people whose thinking is not renewed and whose thinking is the thinking of the world. Because 
my wealth in the world system will be abused, whether the system is out there in the world or here in the church. The Passion Translation says, stop imitating the ideals and opinions of the culture around you, but be inwardly transformed by the Holy Spirit through a total reformation of how you think. This will empower you to discern God's will as you live a beautiful life, satisfying and perfect in his eyes. How do I discern God's will? By a total reformation of how I think in every area. And in this instance, a total reformation of my thinking with regards to money. And believe me, the church hasn't entered this dimension. The thinking in the church which we buttress by a few scriptures, is really the thinking of the world with regards to money. And a lot of times it's because the end in the minds of a lot of us justify the means. Those of us who are behind the pulpit, we understand that this needs to be funded. And so the aim becomes whatever we can do to get the funds, then let's do it. In, in, a, in a lot of cases, of course, it's not crossing into the legality, but if the attitude that brings the funds is not the kingdom attitude, it doesn't matter because we need the funds. But I'm saying as we enter the new, let's embrace these new ideals. Let's embrace this new way of thinking, and let's understand that it works. Money, Thomas Merton, you, 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 you probably know of him, he says this, and I got this from a book, incidentally, that has totally changed my life, called Money, Sex, and Power um, by Richard Foster. He says, money has demonically usurped the role in modern society which the Holy Spirit is to have in the church. Money has taken over that role, which the Holy Spirit should have in the church, in this uh, modern society. Now, we are saying for the new, we've got to change our thinking completely. Martin Luther says, there are three conversions that are necessary. The conversion of the heart, the conversion of the mind, and the conversion of the purse. And in the church, people have a conversion of the, of the mind, maybe of the heart, but how many generally have a conversion of the, of the purse? That's why we said last week that so much of the Bible is devoted, devoted to discipling us around money and material possessions. You want to do some homework. You want to get your Bible you want to start going through the Gospels and start highlighting how many scriptures, a lot of them from Jesus himself, are talking about money, our relationship with it, our attitude to it, because God knows that if we don't get it right, we can't serve him, achieve his purposes, fulfill his plans. Out of the 38 parables we said that Jesus shares with us, 16 of them 
deal with money and possessions. The only thing Jesus talks more about in the Bible than money and possessions is the kingdom of God. He talks more about money than he talks about prayer, more about money than he talks about faith. The only thing he talks more about in the Gospels than money is the kingdom of God. And that's why last week we said that, that example of his where he sits at the treasury and watches them give their offering speaks volumes to us. It tells us that this is important to him what is taking place. His teaching out of it tells us that he uses what they're doing to explain to us the state of their heart. It tells us that what we have imbibed as a private matter is not really a private matter. It's a matter that heaven is very involved in, very concerned about, and is a matter that can tell a lot about the kind of person that we are. And last week we dealt with two foundational principles. Uh, the concept of ownership. God's ownership of the whole. And it's funny, I came across a, quest a question with regards to ownership, that when you understand God's ownership, which you can't go, you, you just can't move in terms of grasping the kingdom mindset of money without dealing with the, with the question of ownership. When you understand ownership, the question now becomes not what can I give to God out of what I have, what he has given me, what I own, it becomes, what can I keep out of what God owns? And there are two different questions. Do you understand what I'm saying? Do you get it? Yeah? I mean, I can't hear those of you who are online, but those of you who are here, do you get it? Yeah? That defines your life. It's not, what can I give to God? It is, what will God allow me to keep for myself out of what he owns? Because he owns the whole thing. So we did the concept the concept of ownership, and then we did the concept of purpose for money. I don't want to spend time on that because I wanted to deal with a few more concepts. Today, I want to deal with the concept of this, the power of the spirit of money. The most dangerous thing a Christian can do is to see money in a purely impersonal way as just a medium of exchange. That's exactly what the enemy wants or where he wants us to be. Because when we see money as just impersonal, just a material thing, a medium of exchange, it buys a car, buys a house, buys groceries, we leave ourselves wide open to the plan of the enemy for the spirit or the power behind money to infiltrate our lives and ultimately dominate and take control. The truth is that money behind money is a spirit and a power. When you see uh, a a 20-pound note, this is really not it. 
a Christian must understand that there is a spirit and a power behind this 20-pound note. There's a spirit and a power behind this dollar bill. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure it out. Why do people do the most hideous things? Break every moral rule. Break every law. Why do we see people act as if they are possessed in their lust for money? It isn't natural. It's because there is a spirit and a power behind money. The Bible makes clear that behind money are very real and powerful spiritual forces that are on an assignment to fulfill the mandate of their leader. The aim is to control, to, in, to manipulate, to induce worship, and ultimately to fulfill the mandate of their leader that Jesus lays before us in John the 10th chapter and the 10th verse, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. It is folly, dangerous for us not to understand that there is a spirit and a power behind money. We just have to look at Jesus' warnings. And it's interesting that there isn't time to go through them. But part of what we have done over the years is that we've focused on what we want to help us get to where we, we want to go to. And we've avoided a lot. But you just do some homework and go through the, what Jesus says about money. His warnings are almost scary. It is clear that he's warning us to be very wary, very careful. It is almost like there's a label, handle this thing with care. And you know, I wish they could put that label on, the, on this money for us, that handle this thing with care. Be very careful. It bites. It's dangerous. It wants to control you. It wants you to worship it. But we don't need a warning on it because if we are reading our Bible, Jesus puts, gives us enough warnings on it. Let me just pick two random warnings that should get your mind thinking. Matthew 19, 23 to 24. It's after he had told a story, which I hope we can have some time to go into this week or next week. I'm not sure. But yeah, let's, let's try and let's move, move on. I tell you the truth. It's the story of the rich young man. I tell you the truth. It's very hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. I'll say it again. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of, heaven, of God. Now, you know, we stand on pulpits and we, we, you know, this whole prosperity gospel encourages everybody, believe to be a millionaire, believe to be a billionaire, you know, you're going to have all this money. But how many have been at a place where somebody has told them, be careful, you do, do you really want to be rich? It might cost you your salvation. 
That's what the Bible says. That it is difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. If we were reading the Bible, shouldn't we be saying, hang on a second. Do I really want that? Or then we should be going further to say, as we will find out, if I get it, what do I do to safeguard myself? Because Jesus himself is warning. Jesus says it is more difficult. I mean, think about the graphic picture. For a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of, of God. How many are shocked at this scripture? In here, if you're in here, let's see your hands. You're shocked at, at the import of this scripture. Yeah? And then he goes on to warn again. Luke 16, verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. He talks about two masters. As he talks about money, mammon, and God. So instantly we understand that he's saying this mammon is a master. It wants to control, dominate. It wants to enslave. It wants people to serve, to serve it. Instantly we know he's not talking about an impersonal note. He's talking about something that has a life. Something that has a mind. That wants to achieve something. And then he goes on to do something that is startling. And something that was uncomfortable for me to deal with. For many years. He actually equates as a rival God money to himself. That is startling to me. My, my religion couldn't handle it, so I quickly glossed over the scriptures and went on to the ones that I understood. Because God, why would you elevate something to the position where you equate it as a rival in our lives for our worship? He says, you can't worship this thing and me. One has to give. There's no space in our hearts for the two. There's a throne in our hearts that sits just one person. And on that throne, you can either put me or you can put money, but you can't have both of us. Some of the teachings we have got have made us think that we can have both. And God says it's not possible to have both. The Passion Translation drives it home, that same scripture. It is impossible for a person to serve two masters at the same time. You will be forced to leave one and reject the other. One master will be despised and the other will have your loyal devotion. It's all about loyal devotion. There are many who sit in churches who will lift hands and worship, who will come from Sunday to Sunday, but when God checks their heart, there is a loyal devotion to money. 
and it is made acceptable by a few religious scriptures, a few scriptures that we apply in a religious way. But when God searches the heart, there is a loyal devotion to money. And it, it, it doesn't matter whether the person has or the person doesn't have. Because you can be devoted even if you don't have money. Your desire for it. The constant talking about it. The defining life by it. The assessment of people by your perception of whether they have it or not. The amount of time it occupies in your prayer life. The way that you feel that life's solutions will come when you get it. And it could go as far as the things that you will do to get it. The way you will contend with the Spirit of God as to ownership of it. And the list goes on and on. He says, it's no different with God and the wealth of this world. You must enthusiastically love one and definitely, definitively reject the other. It's the only way. You must love one and reject the other. And you know, if there's a story that drives this home, it's the story of the rich young ruler in Matthew's gospel, the 19th chapter. Now, there isn't time to read that whole scripture because I'm conscious of time. So let that be part of the homework. Read that whole scripture. But paraphrase it. Rich, rich, rich young ruler, rich young guy comes to Jesus. And, and he says to Jesus, you know, what, what do I have to do to have eternal life? Jesus says to him, um, go and keep all the commandments. He says, Been, done it. This is, a, this, this is the equivalent of a good Christian in inverted commas. I do all the stuff. I pray, I fast, I give my tithes. You know, I do everything. I'm polite, I'm courteous, I treat people well. That's what he said. He says, I don't murder, I don't commit adultery, I don't steal, I don't bear false witness, I honor my father and my mother, I love my neighbor. And then Jesus says to him, after he says, I've done all this from when I was young. I'm the, I'm, the, I'm, the, I'm, the, I'm the picture of a good guy. He says, so what do I still lack? What's missing? And then Jesus says to him, go and sell what you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come and follow me. But when he hears this thing, this young man, who has done all these commendable things, something breaks in his heart. He is so sorrowful, so sad. Some translations say he's angry, whatever the emotions were. Now, why is that the case? It is simple. All those things he had done, the key thing that was holding him back and probably preventing his eternal life at that point in time was the fact that he had a devotion to money. The thought of being without it. The thought of making that sacrifice. He couldn't separate himself from it. And that was in his heart. And the Bible says he turns around and goes away. It's instructive that Jesus didn't, 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 didn't chase after him to say, oh Lord, let me give you an interpretation of what I said. It was exactly what Jesus meant. It wasn't that the man had great possessions, as the Bible says. Great possessions had the man. 
They owned him. His money owned him. He was devoted and in love with what he had been blessed with. The powers behind money, they want that devotion and love. They want domination and control. That's why Paul says to his protege Timothy in, in, in 1 Timothy, the 6th chapter and the 10th verse, a scripture that people quote so wrongly all the time. People, I, I'm sure you've heard people say money is the root of all evil. Yeah, this is what, what they meant. He says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. He was not talking to the world. He was talking to believers. They sat in the church. And he was saying, in this church, in the church, there is a love of money, both from behind the pulpit and from before the pulpit. There is a love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. Now, what did he mean by that? He meant that you'll be amazed as to the evil people can get into just because of their love for money. And think about literally every evil thing you can think about in this world. At its core is the love of money. So why are people trafficking in human beings? The love of money. Why are people selling their bodies in prostitution? The love of money. Why, why would a good Christian get involved in some relationship that she shouldn't? It's often the love of money. Why will people castigate any teaching on money and finances? Even when it is so soundly biblically based. It's the love of money. I heard someone said, Pastor is telling us that we shouldn't have ISAs. Did I say any such thing? Did you hear any such thing? Please talk to me. Yeah, but, but that person heard it. Now, why did that person hear it? Because of the love of money. Because as far as the person was concerned, I was touching an idol. Don't come near my idol. It's the love of money. Why will a, why will a, 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 a man or woman of God who has preached so well suddenly start to say some crazy stuff and pull stuff out of the Bible that is not really there and try to manipulate minds? It's the love of money. It's the root of all kinds of evil. So I'm sure when you hear all this, you say to yourself, I think the best thing is to avoid this money. How many, have how many are almost making that conclusion? Because the thing you cannot win. Now that's what a lot of those who took poverty vows, that's, that was what they intended. That let us just leave this money. Understanding these scriptures, I haven't read many, the scriptures about covetousness and greed and all that stuff, that Jesus, hard words that Jesus gave, they say to themselves, let's avoid this thing. 
and just leave it. It's a snake. It will bite you. But is that what God intended for us? That's the question. Because, you know, we're changing our thinking. And I want to take you there by starting with a parable that Jesus gave, the parable of the unjust steward. Because what does God intend? You've told us, God, that this money is, is, is bad. In fact, in one, one scripture, you called it unrighteous mammon. You've named it. This thing is unrighteous. You've explained to us that it's competing with you for a place in our heart. You've told us that it has an intent, the spirits and power behind it, to take control, manipulate, dominate. So God, what do you want us to do? How many want the answer to that question? How many want the answer to that question? Okay. We kind of will touch on it in the next 10 minutes. I know I've overrun, but I'm going to steal 10 minutes of whatever I have left to do. What does God want us to do? He wants us, because he's not taking money out of the equation. The kingdom is not going to advance in a natural sense without this money. We can't do good works without money. We can't change lives without money. We can't reach out without money. Our evangelization is limited without money. We can't gather together and fellowship without money. It's a, it's a present, it's, a, it's, a, it's in our present reality. So what does God want us to do? He wants us to subjugate, control, and use money. Wealth in the hands of a person yielded and submitted to the Holy Spirit is a powerful tool for good. It can change lives, change communities, advance the kingdom. It's a powerful tool for good. So God, hundreds of years ago, they thought it is unrighteous, run away from it. And so they went into monasteries and took vows of poverty and kept away from it. The world got worse. So what does God say? No, 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 don't run away from it. You have the power to tame it and control it and use it. And so that's what I want you to do, to subjugate it, break its hold, never let it get into your heart, but to make sure it serves you and serves the kingdom. And if there's any, anything Jesus taught that drives this home, it surely must be the parable of the unjust steward in Luke's Gospel, the 16th chapter, verses 1 to 13. Again, no time to read it. But this unjust steward, uh, this, this uh, I just want to paraphrase it very quickly for us. Luke 16, verses 1 to 13. This rich man had a steward. And they came and told the rich man, the steward is wasting your money, wasting your goods. So he called him and said, give me an account of your stewardship. And in any case, I'm sacking you. And the steward said to himself, you know, what am I going to do? 
My master is taking up away my livelihood. He's going to sack me. And I don't want to beg. I'm embarrassed to beg. And so when I'm put out of this stewardship, when I'm sacked, I have nothing that will, make that will provide for me and my family. So he thought, this is what I'm going to do. Dishonest, ingenious, shrewd, whatever term you want to call it. So he calls all those who owe his master. And he says to them, how much do you owe my master? And they, each one tells him. And so he takes the debt and he says to them, okay, here's what we'll do. You owe my master a hundred. Don't worry, my master has no clue what is going on with his money. He's too rich. If I tell him it's 50, is 50, so you pay 50. Don't worry about 100. And he does that to a few of them. And then after he does that, when the master finds out, the master actually commends him for having dealt shrewdly. And then he now says this, for the sons of this world, this is Jesus speaking, the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. Yeah, that's, that stops us in our tracks. What does Jesus mean? Is he saying we should copy the world? Have, haven't all the scriptures I've, I've shared with you said we should, that's the one thing we shouldn't do? And then he goes on to say even this, to say this further. And I say to you, make friends for yourself by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. Confusion. You said it wasn't good. We want to go away from it. You've told us it's a snake that bites. It's going to destroy us. It's going to compete in our hearts with the space that we have for you. You've told us that to have it is a problem. That most people who have it can't get into the kingdom of God. It affects us. It will affect our walk, our faith walk. And then now you tell us to go and make friends with it. How many are saying I'm confused? Let's clear the confusion. This is why you have to change your thinking. Verse 8, the first thing. The Passion Translation says, even though his master was defrauded, when he found out about the shrewd way the, the, this manager had feathered his own nest, he congratulated the clever scoundrel for what he'd done to lay up for his future needs. Jesus continued, remember this, the sons of darkness are more shrewd than the sons of light in their interaction with others. What was Jesus saying? This guy had a plan for the future in a natural sense that worked in his natural world. He was so shrewd, scheming, and dishonest that when he knew that my future is up in smoke, he hatched a plot and don't you think that plot is ingenious? His master didn't know what he was, they didn't, couldn't keep track of his money. So he made those who owed his master indebted to him and, in, and committed by what he had done to taking care of him after he became unemployed. Because I'm sure you know he would go to each one of them. Remember how I let you off for 50? Um, I need 20 now. And he would... He would go around and live like that. And Jesus was saying, here is a shrewd man. Dishonest, but he had the capacity 
to sort out his future. The children of light sort out their future. The children of God, Mark, now copy the children of light. We who are spiritual and supernatural leave the supernatural and the spiritual and copy the children of light to try to sort out our future, how they sort out their future. What a disaster. Jesus died for us to sort out our future in the natural here on earth. No, my brother and sister. But the church has brought itself down to that base level that we copy them. We copy what they're doing and we think that that is taking care of our future. We forget that for you and I, our future is an eternity with God. And we don't just take care of the now, we want to make sure we take care of the future, the real future, and eternity with God. And how do we do that? I'm going to, I'm going to end on that note. But before I do, the second thing. It's important that you use the wealth. This is verse 9. It's important that you use the wealth of this world. Listen, guys. To demonstrate your friendship with God by winning friends and blessing others. Then when this world fails and falls apart, your gener generosity will provide you with an eternal reward. That's how the children of, of light should think. So all this money, all these blessings, and believe me, let no one under the sound of my voice think that they are not blessed by God. If you compare yourself to the rest of the world, you are in the top 10% of the world. If you're sitting here or listening to me, most of your world, our world, is way behind you in poverty. You might just have a job that you despise. It's a blessing. You just have to go to some parts of the world and realize that what you are despising can materially change. Not just one person, a whole community. And so Jesus says to us, don't look at them. Learn from their intent, but operate it at your level. And let me end on this note to drive this point home. Matthew, the sixth chapter, verses 19 to 21. Again, I'd love to read the preceding verses, but no time. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, Jesus speaking, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, this is purely about investments. So, it's a sermon on investments. Jesus is saying, don't let your focus, if you understand who you are, be about investments here in the natural alone. If your focus is my ISA, my savings, uh, my pension scheme for itself, 
and to provide for me, then you have totally missed the point of Scripture on money. He says, stop laying it up for yourself here. Eventually, when you die or this world ends, its use ends. It cannot affect your future if that is your focus. He says your focus has to be, and he's not saying don't do that here, but frankly the reason you're doing it is, is, a, is a longer term goal. Your focus has to be eternity. He says invest in heaven. Oh God. So God, how do I invest in heaven? They don't have ISAs in heaven. They don't buy shares in heaven. They wouldn't allow me to save money in heaven. But you say I should invest in heaven. I should put my treasure in heaven. And that when I invest in heaven, my heart turns heavenward. My focus is on the eternal. How do I do that? How do I keep an eye on eternity while I live here? God, how do I make this investment? Give me an investment lesson. Oh, Lord. He says in the scriptures in verse 9 that we read, invest in people. The only thing in heaven is people. When you invest in people, when I invest in your life, when I pay your school fees, when I, when I help you when you're going through a tough time, when I take a community and I invest in that community, when I invest in the facilities and the things that win souls, when those souls translate to heaven, those souls are my investment in heaven. They are my treasure in heaven because the treasure he gave me here helped get them to heaven and keep them in heaven and, and helped get them to heaven and they stay in heaven worshiping God. So when God is counting my investments, he's saying, Agu did that, Agu did that, Agu invested in her. If Agu hadn't paid their school fees of that poor child who's sitting in my village, Amokwetem in, in Nigeria, who would never have had a chance and hadn't shared Christ with her, that child would not be in heaven. My investments are speaking for eternity because I have understood that my investments, the reason God blesses me is not for myself, is that my, I might make another life better. I might tackle poverty. I might tackle a community. I might change a family. I might pour into someone's life. And all those things are investments that translate to heaven. And that's where my treasure eventually goes. And because I focus on, on people and being, being used by God to change people's lives, turn people's lives around. I'm, I'm making all this money, but my focus, and I will talk about ne that next week, is giving the money out because that's how I invest. I'm not storing it up for my children to spoil them. No. Of course, I can give my children something to give them a head start. But the reason I'm blessed like this is that I might be a blessing, that I might change lives. And can I speak to those of you who are part of the diaspora? You're, you came out of Zimbabwe. You came, your, your parents came out of Ghana, came from the Caribbean, and you're sitting here in the United Kingdom, and you're being blessed. It is so that you can understand that the enemy has created disparities in the world, and the parts you came from are now called the third world. What role are you going to play to get the third world into the first world? And don't wait for a government. Don't wait for anybody to tell you. You can pick up a child in your village. My wife and I are doing a school in our village. We don't have the money for it. We've been at it for years. It's moving forward. We're determined 
that the kind of education our son Sochi had, maybe we can give it to some children who are so poor that they can't have it. The church in the third world, instead of doing this, has created schools and are charging fees that rule out the very people that they're supposed to be reaching. It can't work. And you can make the difference. That's why one of my daughters, spiritual daughters, did an amazing work in Zimbabwe. Uh, and, and Rumbi, well done for what you did in your home country. If all of us were doing that, who knows whether God's plan is that the diaspora in Congo will sort out Congo. Because the people there, the leaders there are so corrupt, half of them, maybe they, they, can't, they can't do it. But the diaspora that is in Christ understands that part of my role is to create treasures in heaven. And if I can change that child's life and introduce her to Christ and give her an education that, that sends her to Oxford or Cambridge or wherever, and that child is a solid Christian, that child gets into a position of influence and can influence others. Who knows if that's what God wants to do in the new Hallelujah. Amen. <laughs> Father, we thank you and we bless you. Next week, I'm going to tell you about the, the, the way to break forever the, the hold of mammon over your life, to subjugate it, make it bow. It's your servant. Send it on messages. Send it on an assignment. Don't let it control you. No. I control you. I make you do what God would have you do. I'm a child of God. And then we can push out this adulteration that has swept into the church. Hallelujah. Were you blessed? Amen. Go on, give God a clap of them. You can make a difference. Think about it. You can make a difference. You know, if every one of us just one thing, you can make a difference. When they told me, Mark, what it cost to educate a child out of Africa, it's a couple of McDonald's meals a month. Yeah, what you spend on if you eat McDonald's or whatever. It doesn't cost much. The exchange rates are criminal because of the ineptitude of the leadership. So your money is good. I mean, if you're, if you're out of Ghana, you have a bit of a challenge because the exchange rate is so good. So you have to spend a bit more real money. But if you're talking about Nigeria, <laughs> 700 and something. <laughs> Congo is what? Thousands, Mark said, in Congo. So one pound is thousands. Sierra Leone, uh, you know, wherever you come from. Jamaica, Trinidad and Tobago. Wherever you come from. And a lot of you are part of that diaspora. So don't let the enemy make you think it's all about buying my next house and buying my next car and moving to the next neighborhood. No. We are here to, to help bring balance to the world. You know, don't, you know people are, are looking for big things to do. No, not, you don't need to do big things. Just pick up one people, one person, two people, three people, four people. Pick up a little community. They're not asking for much. Just a couple of sewing machines so the women can start to sew. Just a cassava-making machine so that they can plant cassava and convert the cassava to, to, to gari and things they can sell. Just little things. And suddenly you change the whole community. And you're not going there with economics alone. You're, you're going there with Christ. This is Christ. 
So you store for yourself treasures in heaven. Amen? Father, we thank you and we bless you. We glorify your name and exalt you. Lord, help us to renew our thinking completely. Help us to know that we are part of your plan to bring change to our world. In Jesus' name. If there's anyone who hasn't given their life to Jesus, you want to accept him as your Lord and Savior, um, you want to start this journey with him, it, it's, it's really a, a, a privilege of mine. I hope that message really touched your heart. The truth is that <laughs> when we give our hearts the seat of our finances to God, we genuinely start the walk to salvation. It's interesting what he said to Zacchaeus when he visited Zacchaeus' home. When Zacchaeus had that encounter with God and was so moved by the encounter, he said, half of what I have, I'm giving, giving it out. And everything I took from people, I'm giving back, I think he said, fourfold. What was Jesus' response to him? Now that your purse is now controlled by the Spirit, salvation has come to your home. We, we haven't started until that part of our lives is controlled by the Spirit of God. And so if there's anyone who wants to give their life to Christ, you start the journey, this journey to consecration by saying, I do. By opening up your heart and saying this prayer with me, Heavenly Father, I receive your Son Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I give myself a living sacrifice to you today. Submit all my faculties to your spirit. Commit myself to a life of obedience to you. I turn away from anything sinful that my life might please you. Thank you for receiving me into your family. By faith, I declare that I am now a child of yours, born again today into your family. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Amen.